I'm Mario Munoz, reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. According to Senior Vice President, Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, Blake Hastings, the average person graduating from South Texas College today can expect to have his job disrupted five or six times due to technology changes. Blake Hastings gave some updates on the economy at the national, state, and regional levels during the South Texas College Inno 2020 conference starting November the 18th. Here's some highlights from the presentation by Hastings. I want to thank uh, South Texas College for uh, the invitation to come back again this year. I think this is our fourth year participating in this event and I will tell you, uh, we're proud to do that. We're, we're excited to do that. And I think the partnership has been great. The second thing I'd like to do is, is continue to congratulate South Texas College for the really groundbreaking work that you are doing, partnering with industry to create certificate and degree programs uh, around what local industry needs. Uh, and and most, most recently, the announcement of your Google Analytics program, uh, which I think is just uh, fantastic. Uh, the more we look at the future of, of the economy for the United States, the more uh, we have determined that, that skills, skill sets uh, are going to be uh, imperative and that we're all going to have to be lifelong learners and developing new skill sets uh, thanks to the evolution of technology and the disruption that comes from that. Uh, and so I want to congratulate Dr. Shirley Reed for, for her tenure at South Texas College. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to see that she, she will be leaving the, the college uh, in January, because I think she's done a fantastic job, uh, uh, you know, partnering with local industry and, and truly creating a pipeline of talent uh, uh, there in South Texas. And so, uh, I just wanted to say that as we got started this morning, uh, we admire what's being done there at the college, and 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 it's certainly an example that we point to uh, when we talk to other communities around the state, uh, looking for examples uh, of how to do it, how how to, how to create these partnerships between education uh, and, and, and the workplace. So with that, let me go ahead and dive into the presentation. Um, uh, Eduardo, go ahead and advance to the next chart, if you would, for me, please. Um, so uh, one of the things that I want to emphasize as we get into the presentation is that um, when I talk about the economy and when we talk about things like COVID-19 and the impacts of of that, I want to emphasize that we understand that this is real. Um, I'll talk about it kind of from a big picture perspective, kind of from the sort of the macro level, but we understand that macro picture is made up with a lot of micro, uh, uh, you know, uh, stories. We understand the human toll, the human impact that not only the virus is having uh, on, the, on the health and, and the lives uh, of many families across our, our state and across our country, but we also understand that the economic and human toll that it's also taking uh, in a very real sense. Uh, I'm proud to work out of the San Antonio office uh, and involved in the community uh, as the, the introduction noted. And, and I can tell you that uh, we're spread all over the country. Uh, my colleagues at the other uh, 20 some odd branches and, and 11 home, uh, other 11 home offices, you know, we're in the community. We understand this uh, at a very grassroots level. Uh, and so while we often will talk about it sort of from a theoretical or High level. I want to emphasize that we understand this, and we live in these. We live in the community. Uh, we're seeing it. Our families are being affected. Many of our employees have been affected. 
and, and so we understand that. And I just want to put that out front that, that, that you know, we're connected and, and we don't look at this purely as an economic sort of mathematical exercise. So next chart. So um, this is a, just for those of you who've never heard from the Fed before. This is a quick map of the Federal Reserve System. Um, this represents sort of the decentralized approach on an every eight week basis. Um, and the purpose of this design was to make sure that it wasn't just Washington or Wall Street that was driving our nation's monetary policy, but it was really the needs of all of the country and all of the industries uh, that were being reflected. This map was drawn in 1913, and as you can see, it has a sort of northeastern-centric bias. Uh, that's because this is where everybody lived in 19, 1913. Obviously, the country has moved westerly and, and southerly uh, since then, and, and it would, since it was an act of Congress that drew this map, it would similar an act of Congress to redraw it. Um, and, and obviously, we wouldn't put a lot of uh, uh, faith and hope in that happening anytime soon, given the way politics work in D.C. right now. But you get a sense of the regions. And of course, I'm proud to represent the 11th district based in Dallas, covering southern New Mexico, northern Louisiana, and on all of Texas. Um, and then on the next chart, we'll show you a, a sense uh, of how our district is broken up. Um, so within the Dallas Fed district, we have offices in Houston, El Paso. Uh, and of course, uh, San Antonio, you can see the, the different territories. So my territory is all of Central and South Texas. Uh, and you can see how the rest of our, our, our district is divided up. And just to give you a sense of, of, of the type of people on the next chart that we actually interact with on a, on a regular eight-week basis to give us a sense of what's happening in the economy, we host a series of roundtable discussions with industry leaders. We do uh, advisory councils. We do a lot of uh, – our research department does a lot of surveys of industry leaders. Uh, we, we'll, we'll talk about some of those surveys a little bit uh, from now. And then we have our boards of directors at each of our branches and, of course, our home office. This, these are the seven uh, women and men that serve on the San Antonio branch board covering Central and South Texas. You'll notice um, Robert Lozano, uh, F&P Brands, they're from the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, he is a Dairy Queen and Schlotsky's franchisee. Uh, nothing is more Main Street. Nothing gives you a sense of how consumers are behaving than talking to a Dairy Queen owner. Um, they also give us a real good sense of how pricing is, is going as well. And as you can see, the representation not only spreads out geographically around the territory, but really represents many of the main industries uh, that drive uh, the economy of Central and South Texas, including healthcare, uh, technology, uh, education, uh, Denise Trout from Texas State University, uh, uh, the, the energy sector, and, and so forth. So now what I'd like to do is just kind of give you a sense of what we've been doing in response to the crisis. Um, and on the next chart, I'll kind of walk uh, through um, kind of what happened. So early on in the, in the early stages of the pandemic, many of you will recall this broke out in China. Um, and we first saw the effect on the economy being what we would call a supply side shock, meaning that a lot of the supply of goods, particularly coming from China, were disrupted as China shut its factories down in order to control the virus. Um, that supply side shock quickly turned into a demand side shock when the virus hit here in our country. And people became concerned. People stopped going out uh, and, 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 and engaging in the economy in its in normal ways, like going out and shopping, going to movie theaters, things of that nature. Um, we had, we had, in many cases, state municipal uh, ordered shutdowns that, that closed a lot of those businesses. And so 
very quickly we saw this pivot from a demand side or from a supply side shock to a demand side shock. And once that occurred, we then saw, started to see the financial shock. Of course, we went through a financial shock uh, a little more than 10 years ago, uh, 13 years ago to be precise. Uh, so we know what that looks like at the Fed. Um, we, we learned from that history and we were prepared to, to, to intervene and do everything we could as the nation's central bank uh, to make sure we kept the financial markets, the credit markets, open and functioning as normal as possible. Uh, and so uh, immediately we began stepping in, uh, not only by lowering the Fed funds rate to, to its lowest bound, which is our normal monetary policy tool, but we also began doing a series of liquidity and, and lending facilities to ensure that credit was flowing, uh, not only to, uh, to businesses, but to uh, municipalities uh, and ultimately to consumers as well. And I'll talk about that on the next chart. So uh, in order to, you know, kind of really make sure the economy was functioning, uh, we really, if you look at the middle part of this chart, we began really targeting the flow of credit to make sure that businesses of all sizes could access credit, could stay alive, uh, could continue to function uh, and, and not get sort of driven out of business due to cash flow constraints or lack of access to, to credit, uh, which often happens in a panic or in a, in a, in a particularly in a financial uh, sort of shock situation. So we stepped in, uh, we supported the Paycheck Protection Program that Congress authorized that was operated by the, the, the SBA and supported by the Treasury. We stepped in with a program to, to assist banks since banks were the primary vehicle for the PPP program. We stepped in and supported that by providing liquidity to banks for those loans. And the way it basically worked is we allowed uh, banks to bring their PPP loans to the Fed, use them as collateral to, to borrow additional money from the Fed so they could go out and make additional loans, make more loans, uh, particularly to small businesses through the PPP program. Uh, so this was a way of sort of amplifying and multiplying the PPP program to ensure that small businesses out there were getting access to this credit. Um, why? Because we all recognize that uh, somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of all jobs in the United States come from small business. Um, and if small businesses go out, go, go out of business or go under, um, then our ability to get people back to work will be severely impeded because there won't be jobs to come back to. Uh, and the Fed has a dual mandate of price stability, being no inflation or deflation that's out of control, but also maximum sustainable employment. And so as, as it relates to our maximum sustainable employment mandate, we wanted to make sure small businesses had that access of credit, and then we were supporting this PPP program uh, every way we could. We also targeted medium-sized firms through our Main Street lending facility, which again, working through banks, um, banks are able to uh, create a loan as part of this program, uh, sell to the Fed 95% of that loan, keeping 5% on their balance sheets, and freeing up their, their capital to go out and make additional loans. So again, a way to help banks make more loans than they otherwise would, would be able to, uh, making sure credit to, to, to medium-sized firms, as well as some smaller firms, was, was, was being facilitated here. Um, and then lastly, through a variety of programs, we were supporting access uh, to, to credit for large firms, not only through our commercial paper funding facility, many large firms uh, uh, sell bonds, commercial paper as it's known. Uh, we were purchasing those bonds in some cases uh, through primary issuance, which means new issuances of, of, of bonds, but also through the secondary markets. We were buying uh, uh, you know, 
bonds on the secondary market, so existing bonds that you know maybe still have some maturity left, uh, to ensure those markets were functioning properly, to make sure that those forms of credit and those flows of credit were open for, for larger firms as well. In addition, we made sure that credit was flowing to households uh, and communities. And, and so the term asset-backed securities loan facility, which is a mouthful, um, basically what that does is it supports lending for auto loans, uh, for uh, mortgages, for, for uh, student loans, for credit card loans. Many of those types of loans and, and, and forms of credit often get bundled together uh, and sold as a security. So you may have 100 mortgages, for example, they get bundled together and sold as a mortgage-backed security. So by supporting these term asset-backed securities uh, uh, through this lending facility, we make sure that the credit markets that provide credit to households for, 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 for all those student loans, credit card, uh, uh, you know, um, credit card loans, uh, um, and other forms of loans, that, that, that flow of credit was functioning normally and as, and as open as possible. Uh, and then it, we also began doing something we've never done in our history, in, in addition to lending to, to companies, uh, which we never had the authority to do before, uh, but the CARES Act passed by Congress in March enabled us to. We also now have the authority to lend directly to municipal governments. Uh, state and, min and municipal governments through our municipal liquidity facility. Uh, so uh, we're allowed; they're allowed to to take out short-term borrowing to kind of smooth out their their cash flows and use future uh, uh, tax receipts as sort of the collateral for making those loans. Um, uh, again, to try to make sure that municipal and state governments can function as normal as possible, and that the flow of credit to those entities was also functioning. So you can see. We did all of this uh, basically by the end of March. We announced all of these programs. A couple of them didn't get up and running until June, but the vast majority were up and running by late March, early April. We, are, we reacted pretty quickly to make sure the credit was flowing. Next chart, please. So what are we looking at now? Well, looking at the road ahead, what are we watching? We've moved away from looking at our traditional uh, economic indicators of GDP and monthly jobs data. We still look at those. But because of the volatility uh, and, and, and sort of the rapid development of how COVID affects the economy, we're now relying on a lot more real-time data. One of those is a new Fed Mobility and Engagement Index, where we actually track cell phone data, cell phone usage, or, or not the usage, but the, the movement of cell phones uh, in, in, order, in order to gauge how consumers are moving around. Are they engaging the economy or are they staying home? Uh, similarly, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that has a, an effect on people going to work or staying at home for work. And what we have found is that as people are moving around more, the economy performs better, not surprisingly. As people stay home more and travel around less, um, obviously the economy doesn't perform as well. And because this is real-time information and it's not subject to revision or other things, it really gives us a pretty accurate indicator of how the economy is performing in real time. Uh, putting that together with some new weekly economic indices that we've come up with, uh, we're really looking at real-time information more than we've ever done that before uh, because we're making monetary policy in a, in a pretty volatile uh, situation. And so we really have to be more dependent uh, on this real-time data uh, rather than the, the lagged data that we typically work with. Uh, and what are the signs we're looking for? So number one is the ability for companies to survive. I mentioned this before. This continues to be a concern. Uh, particularly as fiscal stimulus uh, passed in the CARES Act and as unemployment benefits run out, as the PPP program begins to expire, uh, you know, we're, we're concerned about 
you know, and the resurgence of coronavirus across the country, we're concerned about whether businesses can survive. Um, the good news is we do have vaccines. There's a light at the end of the tunnel that, that, that appears to be coming, but we still have to make sure these companies survive the next six months or so, so that when we are ready to fully recover, there are jobs to come back to. Uh, and consumer confidence will obviously continue to be pre- preeminent and predominant. About 70% of the U.S. economy is consumer spending. And as the consumer feels less confident, as their unemployment benefits run out and their savings run out, we are obviously going to see uh, potential impacts to consumer spending and consumer confidence, which will, will definitely have an effect uh, on the economy. And I'll show you some slides in a little bit. So that's what we're looking at. So just pivoting to the national economy very quickly. Um, so we have seen an unprecedented uh, uh, spike in unemployment that we've never seen in our, our, our history. You can see that the peak of the of the unemployment spike when, in April was around 15%, coming from a very historically low uh, 3.5% before the crisis. Uh, that that jump of over 11 to 12% uh, is unprecedented. We've never seen a jump in that short a period of time. Uh, even in the Great Depression, uh, it was a it was a slower uh, you know, increase in unemployment. It wasn't this dramatic. But we've also seen a pretty dramatic decline in response. The decline has not been as rapid as the as the incline was. Um, and we, we continue to worry uh, that we may see a slowdown in that recovery of jobs. And I'll show you some charts that explain why uh, coming up. So next chart will show you. Um, also shows you some of these weekly economic indexes, uh, indices that we've uh, looked at tracking the overall economic activity as well as quarterly GDP growth. Uh, and you can see they're pretty tightly correlated. Um, and, and what we have seen here is, again, that huge drop-off that we saw. Uh, in fact, uh, it, it, the second quarter GDP was down on an annual basis by about 32%. Uh, that's dramatic. Um, but we have begun recovering from that. But as you can see, that recovery's kind of had fits and starts, particularly if you look at the red line, which is our weekly index. Uh, you can see it's been a little bit bouncy, but it is moving uh, in the right direction. At the end of the year, we expect the U.S. economy will have shrunk by 2.5%. That's our forecast at the Dallas Fed. Uh, and, and, and the good news is that forecast has been revised in a positive direction uh, over the last number of months. Uh, if, if I had given this speech back in August or July, I would have told you that we were thinking the economy will shrink by 45 to 5%. Uh, so the fact that we're now saying 2.5%, I think, shows that the recovery has been a lot stronger uh, than, than, than we had thought or estimated, and, and that's a good thing. So on the next chart, we'll show you a little bit about some of these indices I talked about before, these mobility indices. So keep in mind, this is looking at how people move around using cell phone data. And, and one of the things that's fascinating here is you can look at the National Mobility in, in, uh, Engagement Index, and you can see that it, it recovered nicely in the, up until around the middle of June, which is when the second wave uh, of coronavirus began hitting, particularly the southern states uh, that you see on the right there. And, and, and we started to see sort of a flattening out of this index. And if you go back to uh, prior to the pandemic in, in February and March, you can see that this index was around zero. Uh, so we're kind of tracking how does mobility look compared to prior to the pandemic. Uh, and you can see that we were way off uh, at, by, during the peak in April. And we've come back, but we've kind of leveled off around this negative 40%. So what does that mean? Basically means that Americans are traveling around about 40% less than they did before, moving around 
about 40% less than they did before. You'll also note, uh, looking at some of these indices on the right side, there's a little bit of a taper off occurring over the last couple of weeks that I think bears watching. Uh, this is probably and most likely a direct correlation with the uptick in cases. Um, so kind of what I'm saying here in a long way is that as goes the, the public health situation, as goes our handling of coronavirus and the effect that that's having on, on public health, so goes the economy. Um, those two things are inextricably, inextricably linked right now. Uh, and you can see that through this mobility and, and, and engagement index. It's, it's pretty telling. On the next chart, we'll, we'll, we'll show you a, a few other high-frequency indicators we're looking at. Debit and credit card, consumer spending, dining and hotels, uh, hours worked from home, and, and TSA screenings, which, of course, is airport screenings. Uh, all of these are being indexed back to the beginning of the, the virus, so you can kind of see uh, where we're at in terms of trying to recover to normal. Uh, the, the good news is that when it comes to consumer spending, those numbers recovered fairly well. Um, um, but there's been a little bit of a bifurcation within that number. Um, and so if you look at what consumers are spending on, it's shifted. Uh, there's less spending on services. Um, so we're, we're in, in things like movie theaters and other forms of entertainment where you go out and much more spending on products uh, and, 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 and sort of virtual at home types of entertainment and things like that. So um, the good news is thanks largely to the fiscal stimulus that occurred uh, back in March and, and April of last year or, or of this year through the CARES Act, consumers were able to hold up pretty well. But you'll notice at the end of the, that chart, it's beginning to taper off a little bit. And where we're a little bit worried that uh, as this fiscal stimulus runs out and savings starts to run out, consumers may not be able to continue spending uh, as well as they have been. And that, that doesn't vote well for the economy. So we are anxious to see another round of fiscal stimulus. Uh, many of you who watch the news and watch Congress know they've been debating that now for a couple months. Uh, we're hopeful that during this lame duck session, uh, they'll, they'll at least pass something to, to bridge us, uh, continue to bridge us until, until the, the next summer uh, uh, when we should be able to start recovering. You'll notice some of the industries that have been hard hit include hotels and restaurants. Um, both occupancy rates and uh, restaurant reservations are still nowhere near. They're still off pretty, pretty consider considerably. So uh, ho hotel occupancy uh, is, is down roughly 35%, as you can see there. Uh, and, and, and hotel dining is off by about half. Um, going to the next chart, we'll, we'll show you, um, we'll just kind of summarize. So, you know, again, as, as, the, as the public health situation goes, so goes the economy. Uh, we, we saw a strong recovery in the, in the third quarter, as you saw in the charts that I showed you before. But we are a little bit worried about growth moderating here in the fourth quarter, uh, particularly as we see this resurgence in cases and the expiration of these unemployment benefits uh, and the reduced savings that I've mentioned a couple of times before. So there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, I would say, especially for the next six months or so, um, particularly before the, the vaccine is more widely, the vaccines are more widely available. Um, so we continue to watch this very carefully. Pivoting to the Texas economy, um, you'll see that the unemployment rate is pretty high across the entire uh, you know, region. So 8.3% 8, 8 unemployment for Texas uh, is, is pretty elevated. Uh, normally we are at or below the, the national average for unemployment. Uh, Texas has been especially hard hit in, in places like the energy sector and the hospitality sector as well. 
Um, and, and of course, we had a huge spike in cases during the summer that uh, while we didn't feel the initial hit in Texas as hard uh, in the spring as the rest of the country, we felt it harder in the summer. And because of that, we're recovering a little more slowly uh, than the rest of the country right now. So you can see this is pretty broad spread across all the metro areas. Going to the next chart, you'll see that uh, by industry, as I indicated before, uh, you can see both the U.S. in red and Texas in blue on this chart. Not surprisingly, leisure and hospitality have been the most hard hit in terms of job losses, uh, down uh, about 22% uh, or 23% for leisure and hospitality across the country, and Texas a little bit better at 19%. Uh, but gas, oil and gas mining, we're a little worse off than the rest of the country. Uh, and that's just because we are an energy state. By and large, though, you'll see the rest of those sectors more or less trend with the national average. So you're seeing it's broad base, uh, but it's especially concentrated in, in those two industries. Um, going to the next chart, you'll see that um, Texas jobs uh, did recover a little bit, but you'll notice the amount we went down. Uh, um, was not offset by the amount we, we bounced back up in, in the spring. Uh, and again, we had our resurgence in the, in the summer months. And so you see that the job growth in Texas you know, began slowing down and, and got basically to zero uh, around mid-July. This was because of the, the number of cases going on in Texas. A little bit of recovery in August and September, again, slowing down. And now once again, slowing down uh, as we projected uh, because of the resurgence in cases. And so uh, we're just not recovering quite fast enough. We estimate that by job growth, uh, we'll see Texas jobs uh, down about 4.5% uh, by the end of the year. And that's a pretty big number. Uh, we haven't seen a number like that for quite some time. So now what I'd like to do is just kind of give you a sense of what we've been doing in response to the crisis. Um, and on the next chart, I'll kind of walk uh, through um, kind of what happened. So early on in the, in the early stages of the pandemic, many of you will recall this broke out in China. Um, and we first saw the effect on the economy being what we would call a supply side shock, meaning that a lot of the supply of goods, particularly coming from China, were disrupted as China shut its factories down in order to control the virus. Um, that supply side shock quickly turned into a demand side shock when the virus hit here in our country. And people became concerned. People stopped going out uh, and, 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 and engaging in the economy in its in normal ways, like going out and shopping, going to movie theaters, things of that nature. Uh, we had, we had, in many cases, state and municipal uh, ordered shutdowns that, that closed a lot of those businesses. And so, very quickly, we saw this pivot from a demand side, from a supply side shock to a demand side shock. And once that occurred, we then saw, started to see the financial shock. Of course, we went through a financial shock uh, a little more than 10 years ago, uh, 13 years ago to be precise. Uh, so we know what that looks like at the Fed. Um, we, we learned from that history and we were prepared to, to, to intervene and do everything we could as the nation's central bank uh, to make sure we kept the financial markets, the credit markets open and functioning as normal as possible. Uh, and so uh, immediately we began stepping in, uh, not only by lowering the Fed funds rate to, to its lowest bound, which is our normal monetary policy tool, but we also began doing a series of liquidity and, and lending facilities to ensure that credit was flowing, uh, not only to, uh, to businesses, but to uh, municipalities 
uh, and ultimately to consumers as well. And I'll talk about that on the next chart. So uh, in order to, you know, kind of really make sure the economy was functioning, uh, we really, if you look at the middle part of this chart, we began really targeting the flow of credit to make sure that businesses of all sizes could access credit, could stay alive, uh, could continue to function uh, and, and not get sort of driven out of business due to cash flow constraints or a lack of access to, to credit, uh, which often happens in a panic or in a, in a, in a particularly in a financial uh, sort of shock situation. So we stepped in, uh, we supported the Paycheck Protection Program that Congress authorized that was operated by the, the, the SBA and supported by the Treasury. We stepped in with a program to, to assist banks since banks were the primary vehicle for the PPP program. We stepped in and supported that by providing liquidity to banks for those loans. And the way it basically worked is we allowed uh, banks to bring their PPP loans to the Fed, use them as collateral to, to borrow additional money from the Fed so they could go out and make additional loans, make more loans, uh, particularly to small businesses through the PPP program. Uh, so this was a way of sort of amplifying and multiplying the PPP program to ensure that small businesses out there were getting access to this credit um, why? Because we all recognize that uh, somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of all jobs in the United States come from small business. Um, and if small businesses go out, go, go out of business or go under, um, then our ability to get people back to work will be severely impeded because there won't be jobs to come back to. Uh, and the Fed has a dual mandate of price stability, meaning no inflation or deflation that's out of control, but also maximum sustainable employment. So as, as it relates to our maximum sustainable employment mandate, we wanted to make sure small businesses had that access of credit and that we were supporting this PPP program uh, every way we could. We also targeted medium-sized firms through our Main Street lending facility, which again, working through banks. Um, banks are able to uh, create a loan as part of this program, uh, sell to the Fed 95% of that loan, keeping 5% on their balance sheets, and freeing up their, their capital to go out and make additional loans. So again, a way to help banks make more loans than they otherwise would, would be able to, uh, making sure credit to, to, to medium-sized firms, as well as some smaller firms, was, was, was being facilitated here. Um, and then lastly, through a variety of programs, we were supporting access to, uh, to, to credit for large firms, not only through our commercial paper funding facility, many large firms uh, uh, sell bonds, commercial paper as it's known, uh, we were purchasing those bonds in some cases uh, through primary issuance, which means new issuances of, of, of bonds, but also through the secondary markets. We were buying, uh, you know, uh, bonds on the secondary market, so existing bonds that, you know, maybe still have some maturity left uh, to ensure those markets were functioning properly, to make sure that those forms of credit and those flows of credit were open for, for larger firms as well. In addition, we made sure that credit was flowing to households uh, and communities. And, and so the term asset-backed securities loan facility, which is a mouthful, um, basically what that does is it supports lending for auto loans, uh, for uh, mortgages, for, for uh, student loans, for credit card loans. Many of those types of loans and, and, and forms of credit often get bundled together uh, and sold as a security. So you may have 100 mortgages, for example, that get bundled together and sold as a mortgage-backed security. So by supporting these term asset-backed securities uh, uh, through this lending facility, we made sure that the credit markets that provide credit to households for, 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 for all those student loans, credit card 
uh, you know, uh, credit card loans uh, um, and other forms of loans, that, that, that flow of credit was functioning normally and as, and as open as possible. Uh, and then it, we also began doing something we've never done in our history, in, in addition to lending to, to companies, uh, which we never had the authority to do before, uh, but the CARES Act passed by Congress in March enabled us to. We also now have the authority to lend directly to municipal governments, uh, state and, min and municipal governments through our municipal liquidity facility. Uh, so uh, we're allowed, they're allowed to, to take out short-term borrowing to kind of smooth out their, their cash flows and use future uh, uh, tax receipts as sort of the collateral for making those loans. Um, again, to try to make sure that municipal and state governments can function as normal as possible and that the flow of credit to those entities was also functioning. So you can see we did all of this uh, basically by the end of March. We announced all of these programs. A couple of them didn't get up and running until June, but the vast majority were up and running by late March, early April. We, are, we reacted pretty quickly to make sure the credit was flowing. Next chart, please. So what are we looking at now? Well, looking at the road ahead, what are we watching? We've moved away from looking at our traditional uh, economic indicators of GDP and monthly jobs data. We still look at those, but because of the volatility uh, and, and, and sort of the rapid development of how COVID affects the economy, we're now relying on a lot more real-time data. One of those is a new Fed Mobility and Engagement Index where we actually track cell phone data, cell phone usage, or not the usage, but the, the movement of cell phones uh, in, order, in order to gauge how consumers are moving around. Are they engaging the economy or are they staying home? Uh, similarly, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that has a, an effect on people going to work, or staying at home for work. And what we have found is that as people are moving around more, the economy performs better, not surprisingly. As people stay home more and travel around less, um, obviously the economy doesn't perform as well. And because this is real-time information and it's not subject to revision or other things, it really gives us a pretty accurate indicator of how the economy is performing in real time. Uh, putting that together with some new weekly economic indices that we've come up with, uh, we're really looking at real-time information more than we've ever done that before. Uh, because we're making monetary policy in a, in a pretty volatile uh, situation and so we really had to be more dependent uh, on this real-time data uh, rather than the, the lagged data that we typically work with. Uh, and what are the signs we're looking for? So number one is the ability for companies to survive. I mentioned this before, this continues to be a concern, uh, particularly as fiscal stimulus uh, passed in the CARES Act, you know, as unemployment benefits run out, as the PPP program begins to expire, uh, you know, we're, we're concerned about, uh, you know, and the resurgence of coronavirus across the country. We're concerned about whether businesses can survive. Um, the good news is we do have vaccines. There's a light at the end of the tunnel that, that, that appears to be coming, but we still have to make sure these companies survive the next six months or so, so that when we are ready to fully recover, there are jobs to come back to. Uh, and consumer confidence will obviously continue to be pre preeminent and predominant. About 70% of the U.S. economy is consumer spending. And as the consumer feels less confident, as their unemployment benefits run out and their savings run out, we are obviously going to see uh, potential impacts to consumer spending and consumer confidence, which will, will definitely have an effect uh, on the economy. And I'll show you some slides in a little bit. So that's what we're looking at. So just pivoting to the national economy very quickly. Um, so we have seen an unprecedented uh, uh, spike in unemployment that we've never seen in our, our, our history. You can see that the peak of the of the unemployment spike when, in April was around 15 percent. 
coming from a very historically low uh, 3.5% before the crisis. Uh, that, that jump of over 11 to 12% uh, is unprecedented. We've never seen a jump in that short a period of time. Uh, even in the Great Depression, uh, it, was a, it was a slower uh, uh, you know, increase in unemployment. It wasn't this dramatic. But we've also seen a pretty dramatic decline in response. The decline has not been as rapid as the, as the incline was. Um, and we, we continue to worry uh, that we may see a slowdown in that recovery of jobs. And I'll show you some charts that, that explain why uh, coming up. So next chart will show you. Um, also shows you some of these weekly economic indexes, uh, indices that we've uh, looked at tracking the overall economic activity as well as quarterly GDP growth. Uh, and you can see they're pretty tightly correlated. Um, and, and what we have seen here is again, that huge drop off that we saw. Uh, in fact, uh, if the second quarter GDP was down on an annual basis by about 32%. Uh, that's dramatic, um, but we have begun recovering from that. But as you can see, that recovery's kind of had fits and starts, particularly if you look at the red line, which is our weekly index. Uh, you can see it's been a little bit bouncy, but it is moving uh, in the right direction. At the end of the year, we expect the U.S. economy will have shrunk by 2.5%. That's our forecast at the Dallas Fed. Uh, and, and, and the good news is that forecast has been revised in a positive direction uh, over the last number of months. Uh, if, if I had given this speech back in August or July, I would have told you that we were thinking the economy will shrink by 45 to 5%. Uh, so the fact that we're now saying two and a half percent, I think, shows that the recovery has been a lot stronger uh, than 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 we had thought or estimated, and and that's a good thing. So on the next chart, we'll show you a little bit about some of these indices I talked about before, these mobility indices. So keep in mind, this is looking at how people move around using cell phone data, and and one of the things that's fascinating here is you can look at the national mobility and in, in, uh, engagement index, and you can see that it, it recovered nicely in the up until around the middle of June, which is when the second wave uh, of coronavirus began hitting, particularly the southern states that, that you see on the right there. And, and, and we started to see sort of a flattening out of this index. And if you go back to uh, prior to the pandemic in, in February and March, you can see that this index was around zero. Uh, so we're kind of tracking how does mobility look compared to prior to the pandemic. Uh, and you can see that we were way off uh, at by, during the peak in April. And we've come back, but we've kind of leveled off around this negative 40%. So what does that mean? Basically means that Americans are traveling around about 40% less than they did before, moving around about 40% less than they did before. You'll also note, uh, looking at some of these indices on the right side, there's a little bit of a taper off occurring over the last couple of weeks that I think bears watching. Uh, this is probably and most likely a direct correlation with the uptick in cases. Um, so kind of what I'm saying here in a long way is that as goes the, the public health situation, as goes our handling of coronavirus and the effect that that's having on, on public health, so goes the economy. Um, those two things are inextricably, inextricably linked right now. Uh, and you can see that through this mobility and, and, and engagement index. It's, it's pretty telling. On the next chart, We'll, we'll, we'll show you a, a few other high-frequency indicators we're looking at, debit and credit card, consumer spending, dining in hotels, uh, hours worked from home, and, and TSA screenings, which of course is airport screenings. Uh, all of these are being indexed back to the beginning of the, the virus, so you can kind of see 
uh, where we're at in terms of trying to recover to normal. Uh, the, the good news is that when it comes to consumer spending, those numbers recovered fairly well. Um, um, but there's been a little bit of a bifurcation within that number. Um, and so if you look at what consumers are spending on, it's shifted. Uh, there's less spending on services. Um, so we're, we're in, in things like movie theaters and other forms of entertainment that you, where you go out and much more spending on products uh, and, 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 and sort of virtual at home types of entertainment and things like that. So um, the good news is thanks largely to the fiscal stimulus that occurred uh, back in March and, and April of last year or, or of this year through the CARES Act, consumers were able to hold up pretty well. But you'll notice at the end of the, that chart, it's beginning to taper off a little bit. And where we're a little bit worried that uh, as this fiscal stimulus runs out and savings starts to run out, consumers may not be able to continue spending uh, as well as they have been. And that, that doesn't bode well for the economy. So we are anxious to see another round of fiscal stimulus. Uh, many of you who watch the news and watch Congress know they've been debating that now for a couple of months. Uh, we're hopeful that during this lame duck session, uh, they'll, they'll at least pass something to, to bridge us, uh, continue to bridge us until, until the, the, the next summer uh, uh, when we should be able to start recovering. You'll notice some of the industries that have been hard hit include hotels and restaurants. Um, both occupancy rates and uh, uh, restaurant reservations are still nowhere near. They're still off pretty, pretty consider considerably. So uh, ho hotel occupancy uh, is, is down roughly 35%, as you can see there, uh, and, and, and hotel dining is off by about half. Um, going to the next chart, we'll, we'll show you, um, we'll just kind of summarize. So, you know, again, as, as, the, as the public health situation goes, so goes the economy. Uh, we, we saw a strong recovery in the, in the third quarter, as you saw in the charts that I showed you before. But we are a little bit worried about growth moderating here in the fourth quarter, uh, particularly as we see this resurgence in cases and the expiration of these unemployment benefits uh, and the reduced savings that I've mentioned a couple of times before. So there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, I would say, especially for the next six months or so, um, particularly before the, the vaccine is more widely, the vaccines are more widely available. Um, so we continue to watch this very carefully. It's pivoting to the Texas economy. Um, you'll see that the unemployment rate is pretty high across the entire, uh, you know, region. So 8.3% 8, 8 unemployment for Texas uh, is, is pretty elevated. Uh, normally, we are at or below the, the national average for unemployment. Uh, Texas has been especially hard hit in, in places like the energy sector and the hospitality sector as well. Um, and, and, of course, we had a huge spike in cases during the summer that uh, while we didn't feel the initial hit, in Texas as hard uh, in the spring as the rest of the country. We felt it harder in the summer. And it, because of that, we're recovering a little more slowly uh, than the rest of the country right now. So you can see this is pretty broad spread across all the metro areas. Going to the next chart, you'll see that uh, by industry, as I indicated before, uh, you can see both the US in red and Texas in blue on this chart. Not surprisingly, leisure and hospitality have been the most hard hit in terms of job losses, uh, down uh, about 22% uh, or 23% for leisure and hospitality across the country, and Texas a little bit better at 19%. Uh, but gas, oil and gas mining, we're a little worse off than the rest of the country, uh, and that's just because we are an energy state. By and large, though, you'll see the rest of those sectors more or less trend with the national average, so you're seeing it's broad-based. 
uh, but it's especially concentrated in, in those two industries. Um, going to the next chart, you'll see that um, Texas jobs uh, did recover a little bit, but you'll notice the amount we went down uh, uh, was not offset by the amount we, we bounced back up in, in the spring. Uh, and again, we had our resurgence in the, in the summer months. And so you see that the job growth in Texas you know, began slowing down and, and got basically to zero uh, around mid-July. And this was because of the, the number of cases going on in Texas. A little bit of recovery in August and September, again, slowing down. And now once again, slowing down uh, as we project uh, because of the resurgence in cases. And so uh, we're just not recovering quite fast enough. We estimate that by job growth, uh, we'll see Texas jobs uh, down about four and a half percent by the end of the year. That's a pretty big number. Uh, we haven't seen a number like that for quite some time. So um, just to put it in perspective, we did not see a number like that in Texas, uh, um, uh, except for the very peak of the Great Recession. Uh, um, and, and, and that was pretty stark. So uh, by, by all measures, this is, this is you know, still very painful. In fact, uh, unemployment, go ahead to the next chart. Unemployment, we had new unemployment claims come out this morning, about 740,000 across the country. 740,000 Americans filed for new unemployment claims this last week. Um, that's a number that has come down from the three, four, six million we saw in the spring but still a very elevated number. In fact, to put it in, into comparison, that 740,000 that we saw this morning is higher than the worst week we saw during uh, the financial crisis and Great Recession in 2007, 8, and 9. The worst week we saw during that period was 660,000 uh, new unemployment claims. So we're at still really elevated levels of stress in the economy. Um, if you look at COVID case growth, um, you can see the resurgence. If you look at deaths, that's also resurging. If you looked at hospitalizations, you would see that as well. Um, I think everybody knows these numbers, but we point them out because there is a direct correlation with the economy. On the next chart, we'll show you um, this mobility and engagement index, particularly looking at Texas. And, and you'll see there was a little bit of an uptick uh, in some of the October and, and early November numbers. Uh, but we expect that uptick not to sustain. We think it's actually going to start sliding again, uh, perhaps even sliding downwards like what we saw uh, in the summer months, uh, June and July, where actually uh, the nation continued to improve on mobility and engagement. But Texas saw kind of a, another decline as we got hard hit. We, we think you're going to see both Texas and the nation uh, start to slow, maybe not at the levels that we saw earlier in the year, uh, but still enough to, to take steam out of the economic recovery and slow down job growth and job recovery. On the next chart, so just an overall overview. Um, uh, you know, we, we expect uh, steady growth. I mean, we, we saw steady growth in 2019 and early 2020, but we've certainly seen this, this huge decline uh, that I've mentioned before. The services sector uh, has been, been hard hit. Manufacturing is actually holding up pretty well. Uh, energy continues to remain weak, um, uh, and and you know the unemployment rate uh, is coming down nicely. Um, we expect the, the the unemployment we expect uh, you know unemployment to continue to improve, uh, but really we're looking for the first for the fourth quarter of this year and the first quarter of next year to continue to be weak because of the coronavirus spike. But we think the second third second third and fourth quarters next year should be pretty nice. 
uh, economic recovery quarters as the vaccine becomes more widely distributed and we can really start opening things back up. So not quite out of the storm yet, uh, but certainly a reason to be optimistic as we look forward. So let me stop there, I think, uh, unless there was anything else. Um, Oh, yeah, I, I wanted to point this out because this is the innovation conference. So for the last three years, I, I've been talking to you about this concept of technology enabled disruption, how new technologies and the emergence of new business models uh, enabled by technology are disrupting uh, our labor force. It's causing uh, uh, us to have to really rethink about skills, skills training and education. Um, no longer the average person graduating from South Texas College today will have his or her job disrupted at least five or six times during their careers by technology. What does that mean? It means they're either gonna have to upskill and learn new skills uh, or be retrained entirely because their jobs may be uh, disrupted uh, by technology in a very fundamental way. We've been seeing this uh, trend uh, you know, over the last number of years. We've been researching this at the Dallas Fed. I've been, you've heard me speak about it at your conference for the last three years. The interesting thing is COVID-19 has um, not only confirmed that trend, it, is, it has accelerated it. Um, as we now move to working from home more, doing things online more, uh, it has really amplified this disruption. Um, and, and, and so uh, I, I wanna emphasize that, that what, commu what community colleges like South Texas College do uh, in the space of, of providing training and education I encourage uh, you to think about your business model to be a continuous learning model because we're all going to need to come back to, to update and upgrade our skills uh, due to this trend. Um, but other trends are also starting to emerge that are questions we're wondering about now due to this disruption. Uh, what is the office, what does the future of office space look like? Uh, will we use as many people, will we have as many people working in offices as we did before? Um, uh, and so will that mean that we demand less office space? That obviously could have a huge effect on the real estate market and the construction uh, industries. So we'll have to watch that. So on the one hand, there could be less demand for office space because more people are working from home. But on the other hand, there could be increased demand for office space because we want to spread people out in those offices. So we're actually talking right now with, with uh, real estate industry leaders and they're, they're telling us these two trends are sort of tugging against each other and it's not real clear what the future for office space will look like, but that has potential ramifications to the broader economy for the construction sector, the real estate sector, and then ultimately the financial sector who do the loans and the mortgages on these office buildings. Um, and then what will consumer behavior be post COVID? Will we go back to normal uh, to what we were doing before uh, February? I, I think not. In fact, our, our chairman, Fed, uh, chair, uh, Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, uh, in recent testimony to Congress basically says that the economy is not going to go back to what it was in February. Um, uh, and we're going to be much more leveraged on technology, which really just places this premium on education and training and skills. Um, it also places a premium on dealing with issues like the digital divide, making sure that particularly people in lower economic uh, areas have access to high speed uh, internet, not just having it in their neighborhood, but actually have affordable access to it. Um, because education is moving more and more online. Many jobs are moving more and more online. Uh, for you to be able to compete in the modern, tech, in the modern uh, economy and the future economy, you're going to have to have digital access. So we're going to have to deal with these issues at both the state and local level uh, on a routine basis. So in addition to training, 
so we have to make sure we have access for people um, because that really is going to be a key economic determinant as we go forward. So let me stop there and 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 answer any questions uh, that that may you may have. We do have a couple questions that are being um, asked right here on the chat. Um, let's go ahead and start with Brad. Um, how does uh, he's asking? How does the hopefully approved December vaccine change your recovery forecast? Yeah. So obviously, uh, it, it's it, it has uh, it's very positive. Um, <clears throat> we still have to see how the distribution of the vaccine uh, is, is done. Um, right now, what we're hearing from public health officials is we could have it broadly distributed by the early summer of next year. Um, and, and if that is the case, then I think you will see us really forecast a, a strong economic recovery in the second half of next year. Um, uh, that would be that's sort of the working hypothesis right now. Obviously, anything that could slow that down or disrupt that would obviously uh, slow down the recovery you know, forecast as well. Um, but we're, we're very optimistic about the, the impact of that. The, the, the efficacy of the vaccines at 95 plus percent, I think are also very promising. We'll have to wait and see though, how not only the distribution works, but uh, how, people actually, how many people actually choose to get vaccinated. Uh, having vaccines is, is not the battle. Distributing the vaccines is, is part of the battle, but actually getting people to go in and get vaccinated is going to be, I think, a challenge. So we're gonna have to wait and see how that plays out a little bit, Brad. But but uh, being optimistic, I think you know we're confident a, a lot of Americans will. Uh, but just to give you a point of reference, when it comes to vaccination, uh, on the best year, uh, only about 40% of Americans get vaccinated for the flu. Uh, and, and so, by most measures from public health officials, we're going to need to see 70 to 75% of Americans get vaccinated to truly put this. Uh, a virus sort of in check and and, and begin, you know, uh, kind of eliminating it from our everyday lives. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But yes, absolutely, Brad, our, our uh, forecasts are going to be revised in an upward and positive direction uh, as, as we gain more confidence in the vaccine and it being broadly distributed by the second quarter of next year. Well, thank you. And now we have Melissa Vorkas Rodriguez, and she's asking, um, how do you think, uh, I mean, so what do you think is going to be the, the, um, the monetary policy, uh, after the vaccine, if it comes in, is there anything that may happen, may change in the current, um, monetary policy? Yeah. So I'll tell you in short, Melissa, I'm not allowed to forecast monetary policy. I can, I can get fired for that, but. Uh, I will tell you what the Fed uh, um, uh, um, open market committee members, including my boss, uh, have said, and that is that we have changed our monetary policy framework. It used to be that when we started to see the unemployment rate come down and we used to see the slack in the labor markets tighten, we would anticipate that inflation would soon be around the corner and we would begin adjusting monetary policy even before the inflation showed up. And so we would start raising rates, if you will, uh, during that kind of a typical cycle. Um, what the change in our monetary policy framework uh, that was announced back in August uh, is, is that we're basically saying now, you know what, we're going to be a little more patient in, 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 in raising rates uh, when we see labor markets tighten because 
going into this uh, pandemic, we saw a scenario where we had record low unemployment numbers around three and a half percent. By every measure, we should have been seeing inflation uh, begin to pick up because of the tightness in the labor markets that we saw. And that wasn't happening. Uh, and so what we're saying is, you know, there could be some fundamental differences in the economy today, particularly with the gig economy and other things sort of acting as natural impediments to inflation, um, that we, you know, we're going to be a lot more patient uh, in raising rates. So what does that really mean? It means the Fed's likely going to continue to take a very uh, um, a stimulative posture towards monetary policy, kind of where it is today for a much longer period of time. In fact, we're even comfortable with inflation overshooting our target of 2% by a little bit uh, for a little while uh, before we start to react. Whereas in the past, we would have reacted before it got there uh, you know, in anticipation of it coming. And so I think what we're saying is we're gonna be slower to move in the, in the tightening of monetary policy um, than we've historically been. And so uh, even if the vaccine is widely distributed and the economy starts to regain, we're going to probably continue to want to uh, keep monetary policy as accommodative and stimulative as possible to nurse the recovery along and, and to, to make sure it happens uh, as robustly and quickly as possible. Um, and, and again, having a little bit higher tolerance for inflation to maybe peak above our 2% target uh, than we had historically done. Well, thank you. Um, we have uh, one of our faculty members, Stelso Pulvera, asking if you have any comments or any any more elaboration on the Fed's policy of average inflation target. I'm sorry, so repeat that last part again, average inflation? Uh, targeting. You mentioned right now that maybe you're looking at a 2% and... Right. Yeah, no, there's been no real discussion about changing the 2% target. Uh, Keep in mind, we just adopted that a few years ago. We were one of the last central banks in the world to actually set uh, an explicit inflation target. I think everybody knew implicitly that we were always looking around 2%, but 2% seems to be sort of the optimal level of inflation uh, for most of the more advanced and developed countries. Um, anything lower than 2%, you start getting uh, too close to deflation and, and, and perhaps you're, you're constraining the economy. Anything above 2% and you're actually starting to let inflation get a little out of hand. And we know inflation can be very damaging to an economy, uh, particularly to, to the elderly and to the poor because, uh, you know, devaluing, the, the devaluing of, their, of their money in their, in their pockets and purses and their bank accounts uh, is a tax. Uh, and it, it's a tax that disproportionately affects, again, the poor and the elderly. So, so we're very mindful of our, uh, of our mandate around inflation. Uh, we take it very seriously. Uh, and, and there's been no real serious conversation around changing the target from 2%. I don't think there's there's any any change in belief that, that that's still the optimal, you know, sort of level for inflation. What has changed is what I mentioned before, and that is that if we're below that 2% target for, let's say, a year or so, uh, and then we begin to peak above that target, we might actually let it stay above that target for a little while because what we want to do is now average 2%. Uh, so if we have a period of time where we're below it, then that means we can have a period of time where we're slightly above it and, and kind of average it out, if you will. And that, again, means us reacting a little more slowly to inflation signals than perhaps we've, we've done in the past. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, inflation is just not getting out of hand 
Um, you know, and, and if you'd have gone back 20 years ago and had a three and a half percent unemployment rate, inflation would have been skyrocketing. Um, and, and we didn't see that this last cycle. And I think a big part of the reason for that is there's just been a, a structural change in the economy and how we source products, how we buy things online, how, how we work from home more. And all of that's sort of changed not only pricing power for businesses, but it's also changed pricing power for, for uh, employees. Uh, uh, believe it or not, we haven't seen the wage inflations uh, that you would normally see around three and a half percent unemployment. And we think there's just been the, the gig economy is really having some some impacts on that. So actually, we have a follow up question um, sure. since we're talking about targeting and we were talking about inflation targeting. Uh, is there any any talks about um, targeting uh, for nominal GDP levels? No, we've never. We, I mean, that's obviously been discussed, uh, but no, there's been no real serious conversation around that for several reasons. Um, there are a lot of other factors that affect GDP, uh, and 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 while some central governments do look at that, uh, we stay away from it. We think, uh, you know, looking at inflation is obviously inflation is always and everywhere a monetary policy phenomenon, and, and so that's always going to be something we do. The additional uh, uh, mandate that we have of maximum sustainable employment is fairly unique to the Fed. Most central banks around the world do not have uh, an employment or a GDP mandate. They just simply have the inflation mandate. We like it because at the end of the day, what matters to, to Americans most is having a job. Uh, so we like having that mandate. But other things affect employment, fiscal policy, regulatory policies, state and local policies, all can affect employment above and beyond what monetary policy can do. So monetary policy has its limitations as it should. We should not expect monetary policy to be the be-all and end-all uh, economic policy for our country. Tax policy, regulatory policies, spending policies matter, and they should matter. Uh, in fact, one of the arguments that we would make when looking at central banks that have run negative interest rate policies, we would argue that maybe in those countries or regions, um, the, you know, people are looking too much to the central banks, that they're, act they're asking and expecting too much for the central bank to drive the economy and really letting the fiscal policy and regulatory policymakers sort of off the hook, as it were. Um, and so I think we'd be, you know, we'd be sort of dubious of, of asking too much. But at the end of the day, two things grow the economy, grow GDP, um, growth in the workforce and growth in the productivity of the workforce. And while monetary policy can certainly do things to stimulate that, uh, as we know, and through credit markets and the, and, the, and the cost of credit and what have you, at the end of the day, um, we don't have a monetary policy tool for uh, growing the workforce. Um, you know, that's a demographic issue that has to do with with birth rates and things of that nature, or it has to do with uh, uh, um, things like immigration. We also um, can have a, a, a little effect on productivity, again, through the credit channels, but things that are going to have a much more profound impact on, on uh, productivity are things like capital investment and new equipment, new computer systems, things that make workers more efficient and productive. And of course, uh, what we're all here to talk about, education and training. Education and training is the single most uh, impactful investment we make to affect productivity of, of our workforce. Um, and again, monetary policy can can help with those things on the margins, but it, it it can't it can't make as direct an impact. So having a GDP mandate, I think, would be a slippery slope, because we have seen the growth of the the, the GDP 
come down uh, on average over the last 30 years or so. Um, right now, we believe the average GDP growth because of our slowing workforce growth and because of the slowdown in productivity gains that we've seen over the last number of decades, we actually think the U.S. economy's capacity to grow is somewhere in the neighborhood of around 1.8 to 2 percent, um, which is considerably lower than the 3 percent we were averaging uh, just a few decades ago. And so this sort of gradual downshift that we're seeing in growth of GDP, um, it, it, there isn't really a monetary solution to that. It's really looking at workforce growth and what can we do to encourage either more people participating in the workforce or bringing more people into the workforce. In fact, Eduardo, if you'll go to the back of the chart, Trey, I'll go ahead and show this chart. We usually get asked about immigration. Um, and, and go back. Uh, you got to go back. It's the first. It's the first chart. That one. If you look at this, this is really telling about workforce growth. So before you look at the makeup of each of these bars, just look at the at the trend of the bars. You can see that workforce growth overall. Um, so net change in the working age working age population, which is 25 to 64 years old. You can see that it was picking up nicely in the mid 70s to mid 80s, but then it's gradually been declining as our society has aged and we've been having fewer children. Our workforce has been slowly growing, I mean, growing at a slower and slower pace. And that is the biggest reason why GDP growth has slowed, is this chart right here. If you look at the makeup of where the growth in the working age population is coming from, so we're not looking at total, but just the growth, you could see back in the 70s and 80s, that the majority of our workforce growth was native-born uh, people. But that began to shift in the 80s and the most recent decades and the current uh, uh, decade that we're in. And you can see that uh, from 2005 to 2015, two-thirds of our workforce growth came from immigrants and children of immigrants, and only about one-third from native-born. Take that out to the current decade that we're in and the decade after that, projections. And this is just demographic projections. This is not politics. This is assuming no change to immigration policies from where they are today. But if everything stays the way it is today, uh, we, we are already completely dependent on immigrants and children of immigrants for any workforce growth that we're seeing. Uh, in fact, native-born are actually a net negative contribution to workforce. Why? Because Americans are not having 2.1 children per couple that you have to average uh, in order to keep the population stat steady, just level. This is a phenomenon you're seeing in other countries too, particularly Japan, China that had a one-child policy for decades, M many parts of Europe, families just aren't, are, are not as large as they've historically been. So we're really dependent on immigrants and children of immigrants for our workforce growth. And I only put this up there not to make a political statement or to suggest what immigration policy should or shouldn't be going forward. But if you care about GDP growth, and you accept the fact that two things grow the economy, workforce growth and, and uh, productivity growth, um, you can see that from a workforce growth perspective, we're slowing and becoming more dependent on that immigrant pool. Um, and if we were to shut that spigot off of, immigra of immigration, it would essentially be, be like tying one of the two hands of growth behind our backs. Uh, and we would only be dependent on productivity gains for growth and productivity gains are not going to be enough to offset uh, a, a flattening or shrinking workforce. And so 
So it's a long answer to your question about why we don't target GDP growth. I, I apologize for that, but I wanted to get this point in um, that really these are the things that we need to be looking at from an economic policy perspective. Monetary policy will do its part, but we can't expect it to do everything. And I think that brings us into a nice transition. We have Marcela Gonzalez asking, and I think it might be related to what you were just to the points that you were making. She's asking what sectors of the economy are likely to recover fastest. Um, and I say that this might be a little bit related to what you were just saying, because um, we live in the border region down here in, in, in our little area. Um, I don't know if you can expand on those ideas there. Sure. Um, so a, a simple answer to that is um, uh, we expect um, you will see a rebound for let's take tourism and hospitality for, for a minute for a minute. Uh, we think there'll be a rebound, particularly in leisure travel as Americans are getting cabin fever and they want to get out. And particularly once there's a vaccine, you, I think you can expect that to rebound very nicely. But you may not see a rebound in corporate travel. Why? Because businesses are, are realizing during the pandemic, you know what, we don't have to travel as much. We, Look at all this Zoom and, and WebEx and, and, and online capabilities we've discovered and it works and it's effect, effective and it's efficient. And so we, we worry about sort of the slowness of business travel coming back, just to kind of pick uh, one example. Um, the energy sector, you know, will we see the energy sector fully rebound or not? We know there'll be some recovery in the energy sector to be sure, as people get out and about more and, and start moving around. Uh, but will it be full? We, we don't know because maybe Americans uh, will just change their lifestyles uh, and, and, and not quite have the same mobility perhaps that, that they did before. So that's another one to watch. We don't necessarily know what to expect with energy, but it, it's one that you could see a, a little bit slower recovery in, in there. The ones that will be sort of fast recovering, I, I think, are going to be uh, some of those industries that are already doing quite well. Uh, so anything online and, and virtual is going to, we think, going to continue to do well. Maybe it won't grow as fast as it's growing right now. Maybe that growth will slow as Americans get out uh, and about more. Uh, I think you'll see a, a nice recovery in the service sector. So I think you'll see restaurants, you know, barbershops, you know, things like this. Uh, they'll they'll begin to recover. However, uh, we are not optimistic that all the jobs lost in those sectors are going to all come back. Uh, why? Because a lot of businesses have figured out how to do uh, with fewer employees, how to, how to make their businesses work, how to be more efficient, how to be more effective as they've had to reduce their costs because their revenues are declining. Uh, they've learned a lot of things about how to run their business. So there's been some structural changes uh, to, to the workforce that's going on because of COVID that we're not going to really bounce back. From. So while you'll see nice recoveries in a lot of those sectors that have been hardest hit, uh, they're not necessarily going to come back fully. Um, or if they do come back fully, it may take several years for them to come back fully. So which sectors are going to come back fastest? Um, just by percentage, you know, those that have been the hardest hit will come back the fastest in terms of percentage growth. But which ones will come back to where they were before COVID-19 the fastest? Uh, that will be those industries that were the least hard hit. Uh, those would be the ones that get back to, to, to zero, if you will, uh, much more quickly than those that were the most hard hit. Uh, I hope that, that answers that question. Uh, um, so you've touched on a couple points here, and I just want to maybe elaborate on the, on the previous questions and some of the things that you've mentioned before. 
you've talked about concern that some of those jobs, some of the jobs that have been lost due to the pandemic might not be coming back due to technolo technological changes. And you've also talked about, you know, the, the maybe the worry of um, in the real estate sector where office space might become an issue moving forward because of these technological changes. Um, I guess my question would be, what kind of tools does the Federal Reserve have um, in case, in fact, like we do see what you were mentioned, like the possibility of the real estate sector not jumping back and some of those jobs not coming back. Like what, what tools do, do you have given that we've been running on low interest rates for, for a while now? Yeah. So uh, on the one hand, the good news is uh, from a real estate perspective, we've, we're seeing huge uh, 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 sales and, 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 and business and, and new home sales, right? People are taking advantage of those low interest rates uh, and, and, and people, you know, uh, particularly if they are able to work from home and they still have gainful employment, they're taking advantage and they're either upscaling, upscaling in bigger homes or they're starting off uh, with new home purchases. So on that side of real estate, things look really promising. Uh, we wouldn't expect that to sustain itself at the at the, the levels it's at now. It'll it'll come back to earth a little bit, but that's actually been a nice buffer during this period of time to the slowdown. Uh, has been the strength in the in the residential real estate space, particularly uh, uh, single family homes. Uh, but on the commercial real estate side, yeah, this is going to bear watching. Um, you know, if we do lose if we do lose a lot of small businesses and restaurants that make up some of those retail shopping centers. If we do lose a lot of office space utilization because you know more people choose to work from home or uh, what have you, then we're going to have to watch and see what tools do the Fed have. Um, number one, we have our monitoring. Uh, we we talk to these industries on a regular basis. We talk to the to the banks on a on a regular basis. So we will be monitoring any of those stresses and strains. Uh, you know, early on, if we start to see these things materialize, we'll, we will see them coming and we will have the opportunity to react. Uh, we have a lot of tools that we could react with. We can continue to keep rates low to tr try to keep stimulating uh, activity. We can continue to uh, work with banks to make sure they have sufficient access to liquidity if they do see a liquidity constraint related to commercial real estate. Uh, and and then we and can we can sort of work perhaps with you know with Congress too to see if there might be something needed to be done. Uh, in that sector, if 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 it requires some 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 special reaction, just like for example, there was a reaction to the airline industry as part of the CARES Act, right? We made sure that that we propped up the airline industry. So there could be things that could be done both at a fiscal and monetary policy level if that if that risk were to materialize. Um, we don't think if it does materialize right now, based on what we're hearing, we don't think if it does materialize, it's going to materialize in a great fashion. One thing that we're hearing, particularly from CEOs of medium and larger companies, is they feel like that even though working from working remotely, working from home has worked surprisingly better than everybody expected it to, and productivity has not fallen off as greatly as people thought it would, there's still something that's been lost uh, in, in not being in the room together, not being able to collaborate, not being able to to, to sort of, there's a, there's a certain degree of thing that's lost and it's a little bit hard to measure, but uh, businesses do say that it, it is affecting their bottom lines and it is affecting their productivity and their efficiency. So I think you're gonna see more businesses pull people back uh, than perhaps we might've feared or, or thought, um, but, it won't but it won't be all of them. 
even in our organization, we know that we've got a lot of employees who are working from home today because of COVID-19 that may choose to stay at home and we may enable them to do that because their work lends itself to that. It comes with risks. It comes with risk of productivity losses, which we can monitor, but it also comes with risks to those employees. Will they continue to get growth, you know, development and growth opportunities? Will they continue to get promotion opportunities? Kind of out of sight, out of mind is, is a fear. So a lot of employers are dealing with this. Translate it all, put it all together. It just means that commercial real estate's a space we're going to have to watch. Um, but certainly if it does materialize as a risk to the broader economy, uh, we certainly have tools to react to that. Uh, and, and so would Congress, if it, depending on the severity of it. For the first time, South Texas College partnered with La Universidad Autónoma de Tamaulipas to host the Binational Eno 2020 Conference. I'm Mario Munoz, reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service.